2: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of
3: Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 81. And have we ever got a show for you today? Now, before we get started, I'd like to talk a little bit about donations. As all of you know, when we finish off each show, I always mention the option of donating a little something to keep the show going. But it seems that some of you out there are either not listening to the whole show or you don't actually know what we mean by keep the show going. Of our couple of thousand downloads per week, and the people who listen online, which is another thousand or so, only a handful donate, not more than ten. Server space is expensive, my darlings, let's not forget that. And the more shows we produce, the larger our archive becomes. Up to now, we've been moving stuff around on our servers and in our internal organisation to make this work, but the point is rapidly approaching where it won't work any longer. Accordingly, we have set up a patron page, which functions much like the donations, but it's easier to use and more organised. What I would like to do is make you all a deal. Go and have a look at our patron page, and if you decide to become a Triple F patron, you can drop me an email, and I will dedicate a show to you or a loved one. A bit of quid pro quo, don't you think? Anyhow, on to the show itself. We have a bit of a treat for you today. It is an extract from the third book in the Iscreen trilogy by Sarah Monette and Elizabeth Bear, called An Apprentice to Elves. This third collaboration between renowned fantasy writers Bear and Monette was released on October 13th, and continues the trilogy which began with A Companion to Wolves and continued in The Tempering of Men. Sarah Monette is the acclaimed author of Melusine and The Virtue, as well as award-nominated short fiction. Her most recent fantasy novel, written under the pseudonym Catherine Addison, called The Goblin Emperor, won the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel and was nominated for the Hugo, Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. You can visit her online at sarahmonette.com. Elizabeth Bear was the recipient of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, she has won two Hugo Awards for her short fiction, a Sturgeon Award, and the Locus Award for Best First Novel. You can visit her online at elizabethbear.com. The story is read for you by yours truly, Nicholas Seton-Clark, and my apologies to the authors for the mangling of any names in the extract. I got some pronunciation help from a lovely Norwegian lady called carrie Ann My apologies to her as well. She put in a lot of work, and I'm not sure I did her much justice. Anyhow, here it is. An Apprentice to Elves By Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Monette Even as a grown woman of fifteen, Alf never stopped thinking about the wolves she had encountered as a child. Sometimes she tried to speak to them, stretching out into the pack-sense as far as she could. Once she thought she caught a whisper of mice under snow. Sometimes she was sure she caught the trailing edge of the wild Königinwolf's thoughts. But if they heard her, they never answered. And even as a grown woman of fifteen, Alf Giefer did not give over her visits to the trail warrants. At first, Tin's warnings and the almost fate of the dog-wolf had cowed her for a while. But Alfgifa was not much cowable by nature, and once discovered the lure of those tunnels in their slick-shaped, twisted stone, like the bowls of ancient trees, was beyond her power to resist. She'd seen stone work like this before, though it hadn't had this twisting sense of otherness, of being a little dislocated in space between what her eyes told her and what her hands or feet felt. The Aitranelfar did something very similar. In their caverns near Franangford, and Alfgifa, who had treated altrenheim as every bit as much her home as the Wolfhail, had frequently been permitted to watch the stonesmiths at work. It had fascinated her then, and it fascinated her now. She had watched the master stonesmith teaching her journeymen how to coax the stone to malleability, how to mould it as if it were soft clay, how to tease it into doing things clay could not. She had watched them spin a bridge one summer. Delicate lacework that could support the weight of an entire troop of cave bears. Trell work was different. The stone was twisted, gouged. She could see that it was worked with just as much care as the Aitrenelfar stonesmiths used, and she came to recognize, if not appreciate, the trellish aesthetics in the almost level floors, in the passageways that curved so subtly they looked straight, in the way that no corner was ever true. She learned the corridors, the oddly shaped and angled rooms, and she tried to work backward from what was around her to what the working must have been like. The Altrnalfar had been disowned and exiled by their kin for shaping stone, and it was trail work those long-again Svaltalfar had feared. Alfgifa wanted to know why, and not the reasons that the Svaltalfar gave her and each other about abomination and monstrosity and unthinkable perversion, That wasn't how Svartalfar curiosity worked. It would make more sense, she thought, if the Aytanilhaim had been exiled for their renunciation of weapons and war, although that was another of their crimes, it wasn't why the Svartalfar had driven them out. They'd driven them out for smithing stone. But Aytanilhaim was nothing like the Trellwarrens. There was nothing skew, nothing that deceived or betrayed, nothing to make a person misjudge a doorway and bang into the wall, or fall flat tricked by a new, undetectable angle in the slant of the floor. Alfgifa always had excuses for bruises, being the only human, clumsy, awkward, too tall, and yet with her arms stupidly short among the Svalparfar. But Master Tin and the other smiths would have been surprised to learn just how few of Alfgifa's bruises were gained in Nidavilir. Sometimes she swore she could feel the trail warrens twisting around her, They frustrated her as much as they fascinated her, for there was only so much she could learn from observation alone, and there was no one she could ask questions of. Even if she had been fool enough to try, no one knew the answers. One of Alf earliest memories was tracing the trail scars on her father's face. She did not want the trail warrants inhabited again. She just wanted to know. If there was one thing Grimir Fastarsen hated more than another, it was waiting. Unfortunately for Grimir, lord in exile of Siglu the Rayan invaders excelled at it. And so Grimir had spent all too much time since the fall of Siglu 14, nearly 15 years ago, skulking through copses and behind bushes that by right of birth and blood were his. His weeks were divided. Half his time belonged to those patient, infuriating Rians, on the one hand watching, and on the other politicking to ensure that the men of the Northlands would not forget the Rians as time wore on, nor forget that their foothold at Sigludfjordhjör was just that, a foothold, the first step onto a foreign beach. Their waiting and garrisoning, Fagrimir was certain, was only a prelude to wider war. He wished he knew why they waited.' His imagination supplied horrors aplenty, legions of soldiers, war-engines, fell magics from beyond the sea, strange weapons from places Fagrimir had never imagined, let alone visited, ogres or giants in the Rian's horse-maned helmets. It was a great comfort to him that the Konungur Gunnar Stolussen and Eric god of Hergilsberg took the danger seriously. It was a comfort, too, that they had sent south a complement of trail-wolves and wolf to form the threat of a new wolf-hill, named to honour Freya, under the new konigin gray Grey-Signy-Viradassi-Daughter, and her wolf-sprechend, The keep Fagrimir had raised in exile shared walls with the wolf-hill, as no Jarl's keep had done before. Together they commanded a riverine pass between two wooded fells, and protected a narrow but rich valley below, where his hastily relocated farmers managed to scratch fields and plant crops. The other half of his time was thus devoted to the far more satisfying duties of a jarl, with folk to house and cattle to feed, though the fortress and town at sikil had fallen, and the farmlands and crofts sustaining it, the wildlands beyond were but patrolled by the Rians, nervously, and in force. Fargrimir and his surviving thanes and karls knew those wildlands like the smell of their wives' hair. The first winter, they lost half a dozen people and a third of the livestock, mostly the youngest and the eldest, always the most susceptible, but still more than a well-run keep should lose, more than Siglufjotr in exile could afford to. The next winter, though they were all still scarred by grief, only two old men died, "'and a wolf in his thirty-first molting. "'They slaughtered meat and smoked it, "'and with the exception of a ewe "'lost to a gods-knew-what ailment peculiar to sheep, "'every other animal spared the autumn culling "'survived to spring. "'In addition to Signy, "'the Freyastret also boasted another she-wolf, Tawny Ingrun, "'wolf-sister to Fagrimir's brother Randulf. "'Ingrun was no Königinwolf, "'just a bitch of the ranks, "'and smaller than some of the big males,' "'But she was still a wolf-bitch, "'still strength for a new pack. "'And though Grimir would never admit it, "'it comforted him to have his brother near. "'Fargrimir hated waiting, "'but he was good at husbandry. "'Well, the one sort of husbandry. "'For the other, being a sworn son, "'he'd need help getting an heir. "'Which was another reason it pleased him "'to have Randulf nearby, "'for Randulf was equipped for heir-getting "'in ways Grimir was not. "'The new hail and keep were a half-day's travel from the old. Far Grimir imagined the damned Rians safe inside his stone walls, and it made him itch and fuss and nag Randulf about getting a few heirs. Randulf, being a wolf-cow, couldn't marry, but he could certainly beget, and Far Grimir lost no opportunity to suggest that he would be more than happy to adopt and foster his brother's children as his own. Randulf made excuses about not having found the right woman yet. Far Grimir offered to introduce him to a few. Randulf made excuses about it being a bad time to bring children into the world. Far Grimir offered to eat his dagger in small bites if there had ever been a good one. The bickering was an echo of childhood that comforted and amused them both. Far Grimir knew that Randulf hated, as he had always hated, to do what tradition and custom expected of him, and that was a good half of how he'd ended up a wolf and not a tattooed seacoast lord but he had no more intention than Far Grimir did of leaving Siglud Fod-Hur without an heir. He just needed to make his independence clear. Far Grimir might be Jarl of Siglud Fod-Hur, but he was still Randulf's younger brother, and Randulf would not dance to his piping. Far Grimir, fair and lean and stubborn, just as Randulf was, fully understood, and knew better than to push when Randulf was not ready for pushing. Randulf would come around. And, meanwhile, Fargrimir knew the Rayans inhabiting his keep could hear the trail wolves howling on a cold, clear night. He hoped it kept those usurping bastards up until dawn. Fargrimir and Randulf ran through the woods as they had when they were children, and they had shadowed their father's carls on patrol, except, this time, they both had different names than the ones their father had given them that was not the only change. Now a buff-coloured wolf-bitch with a grey nape paced Randulf, and Far Grimir was a sworn man, rather than a girl with kilted skirts. Also, it was a stomping-in-unison Rian patrol that they shadowed now, both men silent and light-footed, as the Jossal far of stories in these beloved woods. And the penalty for being caught was not embarrassment and being sent home to their mother. They might be returned to Siglud Fort-Hür, the Rians did take prisoners, as the wolf-yarl Schadruf, called Snowsoft, could attest. But it wouldn't be a homecoming such as either of them would wish. There were still cells there, carved into the rock below the keep, and Grimir had no desire to spend the rest of his life rotting in one of them. The Rehans patrol was ten men, and Grimir knew there were twenty more within a shout, ten before and ten behind. The Rayans had learned to their grief how to protect themselves in these woods. They stayed to the stone roads they had hewed and paved. Far Grimir mourned every healthy tree, and marched a neat circuit of the farmsteads they claimed as their own. They expected, and Far Grimir knew bitterly that they were right, that Far Grimir would not burn out his own people, could not burn out his own people, could not make them pay for his family's failing, It was his responsibility to drive the Riannes out again, not theirs. He was glad that Randulf and Ingrun ran with him, separated by enough distance that he identified the man only by the occasional rustling footfall, and the wolf only by knowing that she existed. That knowledge became even more comforting when the patrol did something unexpected. Unexpected things were bad, especially when it came to Riannes, those most regimented, predictable and disciplined of soldiers. Their armies came in multiples of ten. Those decades ran in lockstep, and each man in them wore the same tunic, the same armour, even the same sandals, stuffed with the same straw during the bitter northern winters. Their patrols always followed the same routes, too. Where one of Far-Gumir's thanes might take his men any which way, and, dependent on treaties, come back with information or plunder or both, the Rians ran along their roads and kept a schedule. This meant that if one of their patrols went missing, they noticed very quickly. But it did make it easier for Fah Grimir and his brother and his brother's wolf-sister to follow them through the woods undetected, avoiding the notice of any other patrols. So, when the ten men veered south to leave the paved road and run back towards the headlands of the fjord, Fah Grimir felt a heavy, gnawing worm of worry behind his breastbone. Nothing good ever came of Rian Innovations. Apparently, Randulf agreed with Fagrimir, because his occasional shadowy steps grew closer as Fagrimir turned to follow the Rians. Fagrimir caught a glimpse of Ingrun through the ferns ahead, her laughing amber eyes turned back to him. She ducked into the shadows and was gone again, just as the soft pad of Randulf's feet drew up behind Fagrimir. Fagrimir stopped. He reached out one bare arm "'swirled with muddy blue-green spirals of tattoos "'and quickly clasped Randolph's wrist. "'The brothers shed a wordless glance, "'then slipped, silent and slightly separated, "'towards the thinning shade of the edgewood. "'The Rians were moving far more slowly now. "'Their lockstep trot was not well suited to travel "'through the northern forests. "'They would break out into the clear meadows "'along the top of the fjord soon, though, "'and become harder to follow.' Far supposed it was too much to hope that a Rian or two might stumble on a loose rock at the cliff-top and plunge to his death far below. As he reached the tree-line, he crouched into the ferns and brush. There was more undergrowth here where the light reached. It sheltered him, and the ink under his skin made dappled patterns that helped to hide him in the shade. Randulf dropped down beside him, silent as a fawn in its bower. "'What are they doing all the way out here?' he asked, beard-whisking Fagrimir's ear. "'Going down the old sea-road, it looks like,' Fagrimir said. "'What would they want there that they can't get at Siglut And that was an excellent question. The sea-road Fagrimir had noted ran along the cliff-top of Sigluf's fjord, the ford for which the surrounding country was named. A half-mile further on, it dipped down through a convenient break in the palisade, and descended the precipitous wall at an angle impossible for carts, treacherous for horses, nerve racking for men, and well within the capability of most well-trained asses. Fagrimir knew from childhood experience that at the bottom of the trail was a fine sandy strand a quarter mile long. He also knew from childhood experience that it was forbidden to the children of the keep for good reason. It sloped appealingly under the green glass of the fjord's salt waters, but on the seaward edge, Where the ocean currents wore at it, there was a precipitous drop-off to water so deep even the oyster-divers didn't brave it to the bottom. It would be easy for a child to wander or be washed the wrong way, and be drowned. And, in truth, more than one had so died. Maybe their commander sent them for a bath, Fagrimir muttered. They probably need one. The Ryans had assembled themselves in the clear now. Trotting more slowly, but still in lockstep, they began their two-by-two descent of the sea road. Speaking personally, Fagrimir would have gone down single-file, at a walk, without trying to match paces with his neighbours. But then he wasn't a Rian, either, thank all the gods for the small mercies they offered. Still in a crouch, he scuttled forward, using his fingertips to steady himself against the ground. Randulf followed. Ingrun held back, crouched another shadow in the tree-shade. Careful not to silhouette himself, Fagrimir inched close enough to the cliff edge that he could hear the leather creak and footsteps of the Rians below, descending. The smell of salt and the combing of the waves rose on the warm air. He lay down on his belly, hid his face in the straggle of long grass and peered cautiously over the edge. He saw... a ship. Three ships, bobbing on the waves, anchored in the deep water south of the beach. They were not like the familiar northern boats of siglud Fort. They were larger, wider, deeper, and each had three rows of oars rather than the familiar one. Where a proper boat should have a dragon prow and a broad-striped sail square-rigged, these had eagles carved into the forecastle, and triangular sails, with a slanting yard running from its lowest point at the front, lifting to aft far above the top of the mast. Far Grimir had seen smaller ships like these, busy in and out of the harbour at Siglud for ten long years. These, he realised, would draw much deeper than any northern ship, which was probably why they were out here, rather than up at the keep at the port. They seemed able to carry a great deal of cargo, but their drafts would be too deep for a channel built for dragon boats, which, even fully loaded, would draw only a few inches of water. Randolph touched Fagrimir on the shoulder, calling his attention to one of the ships. The crew, from this height like so many beetles scurrying on the deck, were lowering some long, broad wooden device that had been pivoted over the side and dropped through a gap in the railing. The device looked like a boarding plank, but much broader, or perhaps like an odd outrigger, since it floated on the tossing surface of the sea. Then Randolph's touch grew rough. He squeezed Fagrimir's arm until Fagrimir winced and tugged away. He might have snapped if there had not been enemies within earshot, if sound had not carried so well over water. Rather than simply opening a hatchway, someone had ripped up a third of the planking on the ship's deck and stuck a ramp-up out of the hold. Fagremir thought with a warming sense of superiority. Now there's a very good reason not to bother with decking in the first place. It didn't occur to him that it might be nice to sleep out of the rain on board ship. And before he got around to that thought, which happened two days later, he was entirely distracted by what came out of the hole thus inflicted on the Rian ship. It might have been a furry, ambulatory hillock. A hay pile with walrus tusks poked into the front. A great northern bear, three times bigger than such a bear should be, with a pile of shaggy cattle hides heaped on it. Anything at all, in fact, as long as Far Grimir wasn't expected to have a name for it. It was taller than a withen, though not as long, and it looked considerably more massive. It was coloured a kind of reddish-brown, with streaks of grey and straw in the topcoat. It had small ears, like cabbage leaves on the side of its high domed head, and it walked on legs as big as mature tree trunks. At the front were those tusks, walrus tusks, but far bigger than any walrus ever wore, longer than two human beings, Fagrimir thought, lying feet to feet upon the ground, and thicker than his thigh. Also at the front end, something protruded like a long tentacle or a prehensile penis, fleshy and firm, soft-looking. As the monster climbed onto the deck, it twisted and stretched the appendage, first to one side and then to the other, as if looking to the men around it for reassurance. It did not like walking out on the boarding bridge at all. At the first step the creature hesitated. The boat pitched and the bridge pitched, and neither one pitched exactly the same, and as far as the creature could tell, Fagrimir imagined, it was being led down a wooden trail into the sea for sudden death and drowning. It raised the appendage on its face, turning it this way and that as a hare turns its ears to locate a sound. Fagrimir realized with a start that he was looking at the thing's nose, and that it was scenting its surroundings. It did not wish to proceed. One of the men stepped forward, the handler, Fagrimir assumed, because the beast dipped a knee as if making a bow. The handler stepped up onto the knee, grabbed a handful of the long red fur, and slung a leg over the thing's neck. So he was riding astride, just behind the ears. These flapped, but apparently this was what the creature had needed for reassurance because, with only a little more fussing, it walked down the bridge into the sea. It floated and swam surprisingly well. The whole beast submerged beneath the waves except the prehensile appendage, so far could see its back only when the troughs between the swells revealed it. The handler floated off his position on its neck and swam along beside it guiding it gently through the waves. He seemed to be suffering more than the monster, because the waves kept ducking him. There were longboats already in the fjord. They stayed well clear of the gigantic monster. Fagremir would probably have stayed even farther back, honestly, but seemed to guide it and its handler towards the sandy shoal. A few moments, and the creature's domed head broke the waves, streaming seawater like a kelp-shagged boulder. It moved forward, walking up the beach, looking even bigger with the waves breaking against its implacable belly and legs. On the ship, another monster emerged up the ramp from the hold. The sea wind lifted its rusty pelt. It peered about myopically as if looking for its stablemate. On the shore, the first beast stamped sand. Its handler took cover behind his arms as it shook like an enormous dog. Far Grimir could hear the laughter from the boats all the way up the cliffside. In fact— he had to bite back his own. Then the first beast raised its nose and made a sound like Heimdaler winding his horn to mark the world's end. It rang and resounded, up and between the cliffs of the fjord, rattling small pebbles from the walls. Far Grimir ducked instinctively, flattening himself in the grass, as if the sound could find him out and reveal him to the enemies below. He felt Randulf flatten beside him. When they peered at each other through the long grass, Randolph jerked his head back the way they'd come. Fagrimir nodded. They crept back to the tree-line where Ingrun crouched, waiting. Her ears were pricked, her eyes sharp. She'd been guarding their backs. Conscious of the fact that their voices might carry on the wind, Fagrimir leaned close to his brother's ear and spoke low. What are those things? Randulf shrugged. Some Rean monster— "'Does it matter what they're called?' He took a breath, and held it in as if savouring or considering it. Let it out. Took another. "'Do you think they're beasts of war?' Randolph deflated. "'Hard to imagine what else they'd be using them for, isn't it?' He shook his head. "'Somebody needs to tell franangford about this. That's one thing for sure.' Her name had once been Eber, though they called her Otter here. She had been born Brittony and made a Rianne slave, but almost fifteen years past she had come to save the life of a Northman, and he had come to save hers. So she had been made the daughter by oath of Schiattwulf Marsbrother. Becoming the daughter of a Wolfhöferdmann of the North, it turned out, was not the easiest thing in the world. Daughter meant many things— and it came with complicated gifts. She was not obliged, Gattwulf had said awkwardly when he described the work of the heel that was usually done by Wolf-Earl's lovers and kinswomen, but Otter much preferred work to idleness, and there was work in plenty to be done. She had been content at first merely guiding herself, finding a task that needed doing and seeing it through, then finding another task, but there was a gap where the house Karl Sokolf was simply spread too thin to cover. And Otter was too good a housewife to bear that sense of the household unravelling at one corner. She had been surprised almost speechless to find that the wolf would let her tell them what to do, because thorlot, who was what Otter in her childhood would have called the head woman, being as she was the lover of the Franangfjord wolfsprechend, was busy with smithing and tinkering weapons, buckles, pots, pans, hinges, bits, chains, mail, nails. Endless nails. Tongs, axes, gates, latches, scissors, pails, candlesticks, pins, needles, chisels, pruning hooks. Most of the work of managing and running the household of the hill came to fall to Otter. There was bread to be baked, and stalls to be raked, and goats to be milked, roofs to be thatched, sick to be nursed, a task Otter particularly loathed. The pantry to be managed and kept in inventory, cloth to be traded for, candles to be dipped, saddles to be mended, meat to be smoked and salted, fodder and wood and food to be stockpiled against winter and against the threat of war. Of course she did not need to do all these tasks with her own hands. There were thralls and hirelings and women and hail-bred children and wolf-cars aplenty, but those persons needed managing too. It was worth taking up the responsibilities for what the hail provided in return. Otter would never have believed it until she experienced it, that this was a place where— Surrounded by trail-wolves who would rip her throat out as soon as look at her, she could live in safety and security, with enough to eat, with work for which she was respected, with no one to care that the double-headed eagle branded on her cheek was a Rayan slaver's mark. At least, until the Rayans gathered their forces in Siglid-Fortur and marched north. Otter did not believe that when that happened— The northmen could stand against them, wolves or no wolves. She had seen the Rehans roll over Briton. They had sent their expeditionary forces north once already, the sortie that had started her towards Frannangfort. Encountering more resistance than they had expected, they retreated to the coast and retrenched. They settled in, building their fortifications and roads, turning their toehold into a foothold, the captured keep of Siglid into a Rehan outpost. They were waiting. But it was nonsense to think that they were satisfied. Otter lived in constant fear of the day they decided they were ready. She knew that when the Rians at long last came to pluck the Iskirn, this time of safety would be nothing but a pleasant dream. They were patient, and they were not inclined to miss a single berry in the bramble once they made up their minds that the harvest had come due. But there was nothing she could do about that truth, nothing she could do about the rians she set them aside and, as best she could, did not think about them. Instead, she enjoyed what she had, while she had it. She enjoyed the food, the work, the warmth. She enjoyed the fact that no one raised a hand to her. She enjoyed that wolf carls flirted rather than forced, and that when she chose not to lie down for them, they backed away and apologised. It was a while before she believed she had this privilege— there were not so many women in the heel that went unclaimed for long, except by choice, and she came to enjoy the wolfhüfferd man as well. Skiadwulf was a storyteller, a skald in their tongue, a in hers, and she trusted him as she had trusted no man in all her life. She noticed, too, that when she came to sit by the long fire, as often as not, his stories had some element of the heroism of women in them. He told tales of knowing Fredis, of lagerta battle oak, of Ragnarig householder, who managed the defense of the keep at Jomsa after the deaths of her husband and her father. He gave her women being brave when she badly needed soil for her own bravery to take root in and grow. Perhaps, being a true skald, he knew how much it meant to her. So Kolfer, the housecarl, treated her as a partner from the beginning, so polite as he was polite to every woman of the hill that it was some time before she realized that it was genuine respect he showed her, and even longer before she dared to offer him friendship in return. She was surprised by her grief when his wolf-brother hroi died, an ancient of a wolf, truly, for he had been old when he had taken Sokolfer as his brother, and he died softly in his sleep, in the cold of late winter when the old so often failed. It is a wolf! she had scolded herself, rubbing angrily at her eyes. Not a man! But she had lived among the wolves and wolf cows for almost five years at that point, and she had known, even as she told herself she was being foolish and childish and soft, that she would miss Hroy. And she proved it for weeks after his death, as every time she came into the kitchen, she looked, as reflexively as breathing, to find him in that warm, perfectly wolf shaped spot between the bread oven and the hearth. It hurt almost as much as it hurt watching Sokolfa working and bartering and building walls, and yet, all the time, a man without his shadow, as in an old, old story her mother's mother had told her when she was a child. She said nothing, for there was nothing to say, but she took it upon herself to see that Sokolfa had food to eat that was easy and appetizing, and required no thought, even though that took creativity, it being winter. And she listened, when he found it in himself to talk, when Sokolfa took a new brother, a gangly, wheaten-coated pup of Viradectis whelping, clearly Kiaran's by his odd eyes, palest blue and gleaming gold, Otto was surprised by her own delight, by the warmth it gave her to see them together, Sokolfa and Trigvi, a man and his shadow, and she found herself smiling more readily at Sokolfa, even as she laughed at the way Trigvi leaned into her legs to ask to have his ears rumpled. The wolfjar Vethulf was a shouter and a stormer. Vetulf in the fire, some of his shield-mates called him, and it suited him with his blazing red hair and his blazing temper. No one could be more unlike Skadwolf, or more unlike Isulfir. At first, Otter had been afraid that he would hurt one of them, or that he would take his temper out on the nearest convenient woman, as she was long accustomed to men doing. But no matter how loudly he shouted, or how inventively he cursed, he never raised his hand to his lover or his wolf-sprechend, or to Otter herself. Slowly, she came to believe that he never would, although she still did not like to have him between her and the door. Even more slowly, she came to understand that Isolfer did not resent her for her share of Skiadwulf's affection. He was hard to read, his face marked, she had been told, by the claws of a trail queen, and he didn't talk to her, not as Skjadwulf did, or Sokolfer did, or even as Wethulf did when he wasn't yelling. She had assumed at first that he scorned her. A Britonese slave-woman, why should he not? But some months after Torloth had made friends in her forthright fashion, she had remarked, "'I would not have approached you. Many women do not care for the company of a woman-smith, and I haven't the time to waste on them. But Isolfer said I should.' "'Isolfer?' Otter had asked. Blinking over the bucket in which she scrubbed shirts. She could blame the lye soap, surely, for the sting of her eyes. Torlot was a big woman, her eyes very blue in her forge roughened face, her ginger hair streaked at the temples with enough grey to show that she was older than Isolfur. Isolfur was not much older than Otter, though the scars on both Otter's face and the Wolf Sprechen's hid their youth. Torlot gave Otter a bright, thoughtful look and said, Isolfur worries. About me? You are Shkjadwulf's daughter, and you are far from your home, of course, he worries. And Isolfur knows what it is to be the White Raven. She met Otter's eyes steadily, trusting her with this truth, a truth that turned Otter's understanding of Isulfur upside down. Not resentment, but shyness. Not contempt, but concern. And Torlot, the shield-maiden guarding his back, Isulfur had worried, and Torlott had extended kindness. She would have died for them that afternoon, as she thought of what the Rians would do to them. She knew that her fear was not for herself. The Rians couldn't take this away from her because she knew it was only a respite. But they would take Isulfur and Torlott away from each other. That was a bad day. that was the day Otter realized she had begun again to care. I don't know how many of you have read the first two books, but they are magnificent, and it looks like the third one is going to be just as good. Any of you out there who are going to drop me an email anyway because of becoming a patron, (coughs) please include your mailing address, because we will be forwarding all those names to the publishers of An Apprentice to Elves, and one lucky fabler will be getting a free copy of the book. Unfortunately, only residents of the US qualify for this particular giveaway. Us Europeans simply have to sigh and wish, but maybe we'll be lucky with the next promotion. Even if you don't decide to become a Triple F patron but would like to enter for the giveaway anyway, please do drop us a line with your name, and we'll pass it on. And so, on to our next story for this week. It's a lovely little piece by Angela Slatter called The Jacaranda Wife. Angela Slatter has won five Orielis Awards, One British Fantasy Award, she's been a finalist for the Norma K. Hemming Award and a finalist for the World Fantasy Award, twice, for Sourdough and Bitterwood. Her short stories have appeared in numerous Australian, UK and US best-of anthologies. Angela has an MA and a PhD in creative writing, and in 2013 she was awarded one of the inaugural Queensland Writers' Fellowships. Her novellas, Of Sorrow and Such, from Tor.com, and Ripper, in the Stephen Jones anthology Horrorology from Joe Fletcher Books, were released in October 2015, and her urban fantasy novel Vigil will be released by Joe Fletcher Books in 2016 and the sequel Corpse Light in 2017. You can find her online at AngelaSlatter.com. It is very ably narrated for us by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast, PodCastle, and used to host the YA podcast, Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as @kibitzer on Twitter. And here we have it. The Jackaranda Wife by Angela Slatter.
2: Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes when the winds blow right, the summer heat is kind, and the rain trickles down just so, a woman is born of a jacaranda tree. The indigenous inhabitants leave these women well alone. They know them to be foreign to the land, for all that they spring from the great tree deeply embedded in the soil. White-skinned as the moon, violet-eyed, they bring only grief. So when, in 1849, James Willoughby found one such woman sleeping beneath the spreading boughs of the old jacaranda tree in his houseyard, members of the Beerbai tribe, who had once quite happily come to visit the kitchens of the station, disappeared. As they went, they told everyone they encountered, both black and white, that one of the pale women had come to Roland's Plain station, and there would be no good of her best to avoid the place for a long, long time. Willoughby, the youngest son of an old Sussex family, had fought with his father, migrated to Australia, and made his fortune in that order. His property stretched across 10,000 acres, and the merino sheep he'd purchased from John MacArthur thrived on the green rolling pastures spotted with eucalypts and jacarandas. He had a house built from buttery sandstone, on a slight rise, surrounded on three sides by trees and manicured lawns, a turning circle out the front for carriages. Willoughby made sure the windows were wide enough to drink in the bright Australian light, and filled its rooms with all the finest things that reminded him of England. His one lack was that of a wife. He had in his possession, it must be said, a large collection of miniatures sent by the parents of potential brides. Some were great beauties, and great beauties did not wish to live in the colonies. Some were obviously plain, in spite of the efforts the portraitists had gone to, to imbue them with some kind of charm. These girls were quite happy to make the arduous journey to a rich, handsome, dark-haired husband, but he did not want a plain wife. He had not made his way in the world to ornament this place with a plain-faced woman, no matter how sweet her nature might be. The silver-haired girl he found one morning was beyond even his dreams and demands. Long-limbed, delicate, with skin so pale he could see blue veins pulsing beneath her skin, for she was naked, sleeping on a bed of brilliant purple jacaranda flowers, crushed by the weight and warmth of her body. As he leaned over her, she opened her eyes, and he was lost in their violet depths. Ever the gentleman, he wrapped his proper Englishman's coat about her shoulders, speaking to her in the low, gentle voice he reserved for skittish horses, and steered her inside. He settled her on his very own bed, the place he had always hoped to bring a suitable wife, and called for his housekeeper. The broad, red-faced Mrs. Flynn bustled in. She was a widow, living now with Willoughby's overseer in a fine arrangement that suited both of them. In Ireland, her three sons had been hung for treason against the British, and the judge who sentenced them decided that a woman who had produced three such anarchists must herself have strong anti-British sympathies. She was arrested, charged, tried, and sent to live in this strange land, with an arid centre and a wet green edge. She'd been allocated to Willoughby, and although her heart would always have a hold in it where her sons had been torn away, she had, in some measure, come to feel maternal about her master, and directed her energies to making him happy as only a mother could. The sight of the girl on the bed, lids shut once again, and the moon-calf look in her master's eyes, troubled her. But she held her tongue. "'pushing her greying red hair back under its white cap "'and began to bustle around the girl. "'Willoughby sat and stared. "'She's perfect, Martha, don't you think?' "'Beautiful for sure, Master James, for all she's under-tressed. dressed. is she? Where is she from?' "'Mrs. Flynn surreptitiously sniffed at the girl's mouth for a whiff of gin. "'Finding nothing, her suspicions shifted. "'Surely the girl was adelpated.' "'or tart left adrift by a client of the worst sort, "'or a convict on the run, "'or a good girl who'd had something unspeakable visited upon her. "'She'd check later to see if there was any bleeding. "'Perhaps the doctor—' "'Is she hurt?' "'The urgency in his voice pierced her heart, "'and she winced like a good mother. "'Not that I can see, but we'd best be sure. "'Send for Dr. Abrams. Go on now.' "'She urged him from the room,' her hands creating a small breeze as she flapped at him. Turning back to the girl, she found the violet eyes open once more, staring around her, without fear, and with only a mild curiosity. "'And what's your name, little miss?' Mrs. Flynn asked, adjusting the blanket she'd laid over the girl. The eyes widened, the mouth opened, but the only thing that came out was a noise like the breeze rushing through the leaves. Martha Flynn felt cold all over. Her bladder threatened to betray her, and she had to rush from the room and relieve herself outside. She wore her sweat like a coat when she returned. It had taken all of her courage to step back inside. The girl eyed her mildly, a little sadly perhaps, but something in her gaze told Martha Flynn that she had been entrusted with a secret. It moved her fear to pity. "'Now, then, the doctor will be here soon. you make yourself comfortable, Maronine.' "'She's a mute, you see,' explained Willoughby to the parson. "'No family that we can find. "'Someone has to look after her.' "'The Reverend St. John Clare cleared his throat, "'playing for time before he had to answer. "'Willoughby saved him for a moment. "'She seems fond enough of me,' he lied a little. "'She seemed not to hate him nor anyone else.' Even fond was too strong a term, but he didn't want to say she seemed slightly less than indifferent to me. Sometimes she smiled, but mostly when she was outdoors near the tree he'd found her under. She was neither grateful for his rescue nor ungrateful. She simply took whatever was offered, be it protection, affection or food. She preferred vegetables to meat, screwing her nose up at the plates of lamb and mutton. She did, however, take some joy in the new lambs, helping Mrs. Flynn to care for them, feeding the motherless ones by hand, and they would follow her. He'd named her Emily after his grandmother. She had taken up painting. Willoughby had presented her with a set of watercolours, thinking it would be a ladylike way for her to pass the time. She sat outside and painted the jacaranda tree over and over, her skill growing with each painting until she had at last produced a finely detailed, subtly rendered image, which Willoughby had framed. It hung over the fireplace in his study. He would stare at it for hours, knowing there was something he was missing, some construction of line and curve, some intersection of colour he'd failed to properly see. She would smile whenever she found him thus engaged, lightly drop her hand to his shoulder, and finally leave as quietly as she had come. "'Does she want to marry you?' asked the parson. "'I think so. It's—' struggled Willoughby. "'It's just so damned inappropriate to have her under my roof like this. "'She's not a relative, she's not a ward, she's a woman, and I—' "'You love her,' finished St. John. Mrs. Flynn had spoken to him quietly upon his arrival. "'There's always a charitable institution. "'I could find her a position with one of the ladies in Sydney Town as a maid or companion.' No, no, I I won't let her go. Willoughby wiped the sweat from his brow, felt his shirt sticking to the skin of his back. I, I can't let her go. I want to look after her. I want her to wife. John Sinclair released a heavy sigh. He was, to a large extent, dependent on Willoughby's goodwill. What mind did it make to him if Willoughby wished to marry a mute who'd appeared from nowhere? Younger sons were still kidnapping brides in England. This was... "'marginally less reprehensible. "'Very well. "'I will conduct the ceremony. "'Next Sunday?' Uh, "'Tomorrow.' "'Ah, yes, tomorrow. "'Very well.' "'He did not use the phrase unseemly haste, "'although he knew others would. "'What Willoughby wanted, Willoughby would have, "'and if it benefited the Reverend Clare "'in the long and short term, "'then so much the better. "'The ceremony was short.' the groom radiant, and the bride silent. Mrs. Flynn had dressed the girl in the prettiest of the new frocks James ordered made for her. It was pink. Willoughby had wanted white, but Mrs. Flynn insisted it would wash out someone so pale, and she had carried the day, on territory too uncertain for a male to risk insistence. The ring was not a plain yellow band, but something different— white gold set with an enormous amethyst. She seemed to like the stone, staring at it throughout the ceremony, smiling at the parson when he asked if she agreed to the marriage. Willoughby saw only a smile, but heard a resounding yes, and convinced himself that she loved him. She didn't seem to care what he did to her body. Having no experience of men, either good or bad, having no concept of her body as her own, she accepted whatever he did to her. For his part he laboured over her, trying to elicit a response, some sign of love or lust, some desire to be with him. Never finding it, he became frustrated, at first simply slaking his own lust quickly. Gradually he became a little cruel, pinching, biting, hoping to inflict on her a little of the hurt his love caused him. For all the centuries men have dreamed of the joy of a silent wife— Willoughby discovered that the reality of one was entirely unsatisfactory. It was Mrs. Flynn who first noticed the changes in her, not her husband who stripped her bare each night and used her body as he wished. It was Martha, with her unerring woman's instinct, who pulled him aside and told him the girl was pregnant. Willoughby became gentle once again, no longer insisting on his conjugal rights, but sleeping wrapped around her, his hands wandering to the slowly swelling belly, praying that what he had planted there would stay and would, in turn, keep her by his side. More and more he found her under the jacaranda tree. She sat silently for hours, no longer interested in painting, but stroking her growing belly as if soothing the child inside. Whenever he arrived back at the house at the end of the day, he would go straight to the tree, for he knew that was where he would find his wife. "'Where's Sally?' demanded Willoughby. "'On one of his infrequent trips to the kitchen he found Martha alone, "'no sign of the Indigenous girl, renamed Sally, in spite of her protests, "'who helped around the kitchen. "'Gone! They're all gone, all the natives. "'They won't come here any more,' said Mrs. Flynn, "'her skin shining, hair trying to escape the cotton cap as usual. "'Willoughby paused, astounded. "'Why not?' Haven't I always been good to them? I've never abused them or punished them unduly. I don't understand. Mrs. Flynn was silent for a moment, weighing her words, wishing she'd not opened her mouth in the first place. How to explain? It's Emily. They're scared of her, she said reluctantly. Scared of Emily? (laughs) His laugh was sharp. How the hell can anyone be scared of Emily? She's... "'Different, Master James. Leave it at that. It scares them. "'They have their legends, and she scares them.' "'What bloody legends! What are you talking about?' "'He gripped her upper arm tightly, squeezing a slight squeal from her "'as the flesh began to pinch between his knuckles. "'She could smell the sour brandy on his breath. "'He let her go, but insisted, "'What legends, Damn it!" "'Sally said they come from the trees. They don't belong anywhere.' "'They bring grief, and eventually they go back to the trees.' "'Mrs. Flynn battered away tears with the back of her hand. "'Willoughby stared at her. "'And you? What do you think?' "'There are superstitions, and then there are things we cannot understand, Master James.' "'She bent her head. New tears fell onto the dough she was kneading. "'She folded them into the rubbery mixture and refused to look at him again. "'He left the kitchen, swearing and shaking his head. Willoughby rounded the corner of the house, raised his eyes and saw his wife, her curved belly seeming to defy gravity, walking slowly towards the jacaranda tree. She stood before its thick trunk and placed one hand against the rough bark. As he watched, the slender pale limb seemed to sink deeply into the wood, and the rest of her arm looked sure to follow. With a yell he charged at her, pulled her away with a force driven by anger and despair. She was flung about like a leaf in the wind. Finally settling, she stared at him with something approaching fear, something approaching anger. He was too furious to see it, and he ranted at her, finger pointed like a blade. Never, never, never! You will never go near these trees again! You will never leave me! He locked her in her bedroom, then gave orders to his station hounds, Get rid of all the jacarandas. Cut them down. Burn them. Destroy them all. All the ones you can find. So all the jacarandas within the bounds of Roland's plain were raised. He even sent some of his men to walk three days beyond the boundaries and destroy any offending tree they found there. He let her out only when he was certain all the jacarandas were gone. Her scream when she found the dead stump of the tree was the sound of every violated, outraged thing. Mrs. Flynn ushered the child into the world that evening. Emily did not stop screaming the entire birth, but Mrs. Flynn could not help but feel that the screams were more for rage than for any pain the tearing child caused, for there was very little blood. Strangely little blood. The milk that dripped from Emily's nipples smelled strongly of sap, The child made a face at her first taste, then settled to empty the breast, her face constantly twisted in an expression of dissatisfaction. Willoughby came to visit his wife and daughter, his contrite face having no effect on Emily. She opened her mouth, and a noise came like that of a tree blasted by storm winds. Having not heard his wife utter a sound before, he was stunned. Having not heard anything like this, ever, he was appalled. He backed out of the room and retreated to his study and the bottle of brandy with which he'd become very familiar since his marriage. Late one evening, a few weeks after the birth, Mrs. Flynn saw Emily, standing slender and silver in the moonlight, motionless beside the stump of her tree. She held the baby at her breast. The child was quiet. Martha was minded, though she knew not why, of Selkie Wives women stripped of their seal-skin by husbands afraid to lose them, by men who feared them more than they could love them. She called quietly to Emily and gestured for her to follow. She led her to a stand of eucalypts not far from the house. Within the circle of gum-trees stood a lone jacaranda, the one she knew Willoughby had missed, the one she kept to herself. The silver woman needed to be able to go back to her place or she'd haunt them forever. Martha shivered. She was terrified of this ghostly creature, but she hoped she loved Emily more than she feared her, loved her enough to show her the way back. She watched Emily's face as she recognized the jacaranda, smiled, leaned against the trunk, and a sound like leaves laughing blew around the clearing. Martha backed away. She watched the woman's hand slide into the trunk, saw her move forward, then stop, The child would not go into the tree. Her diluted flesh and blood tied her to her father and his kind. Martha watched as the pale woman kissed the child's forehead and laid her gently on the ground. Emily pushed her way into the tree, disappearing until the brown bark was visible again, undisturbed for all intents and purposes. The tree shook itself and let fall an unseasonable shower of purple flowers. To cover Martha and the baby, she scooped up and held tightly. Willoughby be drinks. Mrs. Flynn often pours for him. She is strangely disappointed in him each time he swallows back the brandy decanted by her own hand. Most of her time she spends with his daughter, who has her father's dark curls and her mother's violet eyes. She is a quiet child. But on the occasions when her cries have a certain tone, a certain pitch, Martha catches her up and takes her for a walk to the stand of eucalypts. Roland's plains sole remaining jacaranda will release a purple blanket no matter what the weather, and the child stares up at the tree as if she finds it very lovely indeed.
3: And that's it for this week, my darlings. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you'd like to share your thoughts on any of our stories or our new patron initiative, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. I'll be raising a glass for each of our new patrons this week. Hopefully, you lot are going to make me very drunk. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders
2: and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.